This podcast is an EGA production. Welcome to Forecasting the Middle East, the EGA podcast on Middle East business, politics, and trends. I'm Tyler Jones, Director of Middle East and North Africa with EGA in Washington, D.C. In March 2023, Saudi Arabia and Iran announced a historic agreement to normalize relations after years of regional competition and proxy conflict. As significant as the deal itself was, the role that China played in helping to broker the agreement took center stage in diplomatic circles. Though this moment served as a dramatic example of China's growing role in the Middle East, it did not occur in a vacuum. For years, China has been growing its trade and investment across the region. As a result, China has established itself as the largest trade partner for regional powers like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. How do we make sense of China's growing economic involvement in the Middle East? And what trends can we expect in the future? With us today to understand China's economic involvement in the Middle East is Zoe Liu, the Maurice R. Greenberg Fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Zoe is author of Sovereign Funds, How the Communist Party of China Finances Its Global Ambitions, which is the first in-depth account of the sudden growth of China's sovereign wealth funds and their transformative impact on global markets, domestic and multinational businesses, and international politics. Zoe Liu, Fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Tyler, for having me. So today I, I want to talk about very big picture, obviously, China's economic activism in the Middle East and how they are deploying and using their sovereign funds uh, for these economic objectives and some trends that you're, you're seeing and you're keeping an eye on. But to start here at a very basic level, I want to just make sure that we level set our understandings of the terminology. So for anyone paying attention now to the Middle East, paying attention to Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, we're hearing a lot about these very big sovereign wealth funds. So that at a very basic level then, can you just explain to me, when people talk about sovereign wealth funds, what do they mean? So sovereign wealth funds, actually there is no um, universally agreed definition, um, but normally, People refer to sovereign wealth fund as government-owned investment institutions that are either capitalized by uh, natural resources or uh, physical surpluses and other sort of revenues that are government-owned for the purpose of um, intergenerational wealth transfer, domestic development, and uh, um, in certain cases, it could also be used for um buffering against international volatilities. Now, goes back to the uh, the function of domestic development, there are a lot of di- uh, disagreement in terms of whether or not a sovereign wealth fund capitalized by com- uh, commodity revenues should be used for domestic development purposes. So that's a sovereign wealth fund. Yeah, in a nutshell, it refers to um, government-owned investment institutions capitalized oftentimes by Natural, natural resource revenues. So then I want to make a distinction here early on. 
obviously the title of your book being Sovereign Funds, How the Communist Party of China Finances Its Global Ambitions. So when you talk about sovereign funds versus sovereign wealth funds, is there a distinction here? Uh, yes, and uh, thank you, Tyler, for noticing the um, the difference. And the reason I uh, called the book Sovereign Funds instead of a Sovereign Wealth Fund is specifically because I tried to uh, distinguish Chinese funds from um, Sovereign Wealth Fund based in UAE, Qatar, or, or Saudi Arabia. And the reason is because if you look at you, if you look at the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority or uh, Saudi Arabia's public investment funds, or for that matter, Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, those are capitalized by commodity revenues. Whereas China is the world's largest commodity importing country, it does not make sense why China could have sovereign wealth funds, not just one but several, and where the money comes from. So that's why uh, in uh, doing the book, in doing the, re doing the research, I adopted this approach called follow the money, find the politics. The idea is I wanted to know where the money comes from. And it turned out that China used its foreign exchange reserves to capitalize sovereign funds. And the reason why it's not sovereign wealth fund, but what I call sovereign leveraged funds is specifically because in the creation of China's sovereign funds, the, it involved the government using either explicit or implicit leverage. Explicit specifically means um, the government issued special purpose bond. It involved the government expanding balance sheet uh, using the bond proceed to capitalize the sovereign funds, or in this case, the sovereign leveraged funds. And this example uh, eventually leads to the creation of a China Investment Corporation. As of 2021, um, I think the asset under management exceeded 1.3 trillion U.S. dollar, and by that time, Mexico it's larger than the Mexico the Mexico's GDP, and Mexico was the world's 15th largest economy, so it's it's massive. And then in terms of implicit, it specifically refers to a process where the government really did not issue bonds, did not involve. Um, the expansion of balance sheet, but it involved investing foreign exchange reserves into higher risk, less liquid assets. Now, the moment when foreign exchange reserves are moved out of low risk or zero liquid, zero risk and highly liquid assets, such as uh, U.S. Treasury bills, the moment they moved outside of those safe assets and invested in other risk-bearing assets, those are no longer foreign exchange reserve assets. They are still foreign exchange assets, but they are no longer reserve assets. Now, in this process, you it involved the decrease of high, uh, safer assets, the increase in riskier assets, so the uh, risk profile of the entire foreign exchange assets increased. And by, defini by definition, financial gearing, this is implicit leverage. And an example of that would be the series of funds um, affiliated with SAFE or the state administration of a foreign exchange. So I know you mentioned CIC um, as we're 
just getting our bearings and understanding of, of the full scope of, of China's use of sovereign funds. Can you give just a brief overview of the different funds that China has at its, at its disposal? Uh, sure. Uh, China, uh, the uh, the headline uh, sovereign funds that people are familiar with uh, would be CIC or China Investment Corporation, which was uh, established in 2007. But CIC was not the first time that uh, the Chinese government attempted to use foreign exchange reserves to capitalize a sovereign leverage fund. The very first attempt uh, that the Chinese government did this was back in 2003 uh, for the purpose of solving domestic uh, banking crisis. Uh, at that time, major state-owned commercial banks were burdened uh, or crippled by non-performing loans. And by international standards, many of those would be uh, considered as insolvent. So in order to solve the insolvency of these banks and recapitalize them, the Chinese uh, government decided to have the People's Bank of China creating a create a uh, a special purpose vehicle called a central Huijin, uh, using foreign exchange reserves and use Huijin to restructure those banks. And the restructure was very successful. Later, central Huijin uh, took on the mission to restructure domestic stock brokerage firms, as well as major uh, policy banks like China Investment, uh, China Development Bank, Import and Export Bank, and the Sinoshore or the Export Credit Insurance Agencies. Those are major agencies um, involved in funding the Belt and Road Initiative. And once the CIC was established in 2007, uh, CIC, uh, it, at, the, at the time of CIC's establishment, it acquired uh, Central Huijin. So now you don't necessarily hear Central Huijin on global stage, but as a domestic subsidiary of CIC, it indirectly financing the Belt and Road Initiative through its shareholding of major Chinese banks and other government-owned financial institutions. And then the other part of um, sovereign, sovereign leverage fund in the Chinese landscape is uh, SAFE affiliated funds. Now, SAFE or state-owned, uh, state administration of foreign exchange. SAFE-owned fund uh, include uh, both domestic arms and uh, international. So for domestic arms, uh, the, it's still in an evolving stage, but so far uh, it it, the, the leading or the premier one would be this institution called Buttonwood. And this Buttonwood also funded additional four domestic investment arms that had that participated in the 2015 um, stock market stabilization when the Chinese stock market triggered uh, circuit breaker and those funds participated in boosting up the stock shares. And then, but you know, the Buttonwood initially was not necessarily created to support domestic stock market, but actually it was created to uh, capitalize this institution called Silk Road Fund. And Silk Road Fund was the leading fund um, tasked to finance the Belt and Road Initiative. And then from there, it also uh, capitalized the other funds that are uh, directly participating or supporting uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, including a co joint cooperation fund with uh, Latin America. And uh, oh, uh, in addition to that, a lot, both the CIC and SAFE affiliated funds established um, 
international partners with a desired hosting economy. One example for CIC would be uh, the CIC partnership with Goldman Sachs, the U.S.-China Industrial Corporation partnership. So that's the landscape. So then, like you said, with CIC founded in 2007 at this point, just a little bit over a decade old. And yet when you look at global rankings of the largest sovereign funds, CIC consistently falls in the top two or three. How in such a short amount of time did did China build CIC to be so big so fast? That's an excellent question. Um, CIC's earlier early day investment was not necessarily successful if you know 2007 that was in the running up of a global financial crisis so it did suffer some um, um, I would I would be careful to say it's not necessarily realized the loss but but paper loss right as long as uh, they still own the share the the, the, the value loss was would not was not considered as realized but what really made CIC successful was part of that was when CIC uh, was was really state backing in the, when CIC was established um, the it literally had to pay interest on the bond issuance um, that uh, used to that that government issued to capitalize the CIC, and when CIC was suffering from financial loss during financial crisis, that was a huge burden. So the government eventually decided that um, there is this debt to equity conversion, so uh, reduced the CIC's um, interest rate uh, payment burden, interest payment burden, and then uh, over after uh, two thousand. 13 in particular, you know, financial crisis happened, CIC suffered from uh, paper loss. And then following, uh, during the global financial crisis, there was also the so-called, uh, the end of the global commodities super cycle. There is this collapse of uh, commodity prices. So, and CIC also invested in major uh, in commodities. So it also suffered a loss there. So it really took off after 2013. And, uh, a lot of this reason comes from first government support, and then uh, the recovery of global financial market certainly helped the CIC to build up its um, its uh, value because the investment in, during financial crisis now gained value, the value appreciation. So public equity investment appreciated, and then CIC was also able to um, embark on. Um, series of other investment, both in private equity, uh, mean, meaning have other leading financial management team uh, have the expertise to help them manage money. Um, and with the development of Belt and Road Initiative, CIC also embarked on overseas direct investment. And that also helped, it, uh, helped the CIC to uh, gain value, uh, especially over in terms of a glo uh, their global portfolio outside of China. And then finally, CIC also made uh, some pretty good investment in unicorn companies such as Alibaba. And that is really a huge success. Um, back in 2014, before Alibaba's um, launch, uh, before Alibaba's launch, uh, IPO on New York Stock Exchange. CIC got in there early, and uh, but that's a different story in terms of how the relationship between Alibaba uh, and the China's state-owned financial institutions backing. 
So at this point, then uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and look at at how China is deploying its sovereign funds in the Middle East. Sure. Uh, and at this point, it's it's pretty common knowledge at this point how China is increasing its economic ties in the Middle East, obviously with a strong emphasis on places like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Right. How specifically through the lens of the sovereign funds, how has China been leveraging these funds in the Middle East with Saudi Arabia, with UAE? And that's an excellent question. Um, so you are absolutely right, Tyler. You know, China's involvement in the region is not is, is really nothing new uh, until now. And um it's also not just about oil and gas. There is also financial investment. There is also uh, infrastructure investment and all, all, all that and renewables. In terms of the sovereign funds corporation, just keep, keep that in mind. Sovereign funds corporation is just one aspect of this multifaceted um, Chinese investment or chi China uh, Middle East or in particular the Gulf Corporation Council member countries. Uh, it's just a, a sovereign funds involvement is just one aspect of this multifaceted uh, relationship. And regarding sovereign well, sovereign funds corporation, um, from China's end, uh, the uh, a premier example would be the Silk Road Fund and and the CIC. Um, I'll just give one example in terms of Saudi Arabia, since you mentioned Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia has this leading fund becoming increasingly active, which is um, the Public Investment Fund, or PIF. Starting from uh, 2016, in the beginning of 2016, I remember uh, Silk Road Fund already signed an MOU with uh, a regional power group called um, ACWA Power to jointly develop and invest in power project in UAE, uh, Egypt, and other uh, countries in the region. And then related a few years later, um, I think it's around 2018, uh, at that time, um, PIF, uh, the Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, also became a partner of the Russia-China Investment Fund, which is, uh, so the Russia-China Investment Fund is a partnership between Russia and Russian sovereign funds, the National Wealth Fund, and um, China Investment Corporation. This, there is a China-Russia Investment Fund, and PIF became part of that. And it, I think it contributed something around $500 million at that time. Um, then this kind of a corporation accelerated after 2008. Um, PIF signed some additional MOUs with Chinese renewable uh, energy groups, including uh, not just in terms of building the power renewable power uh, power plant, it uh, goes along the entire supply chains such as manufacturing, power generation, emerging technologies, and all that. And then um, fast forward during uh, it was actually during during the pandemic. You know, this kind of although during the pandemic, Chinese investment outflows has has literally dried up, but uh, PIF and Silk Road Funds, this kind of a cooperation was still going on. One such example is that it is um, the 2021 Silk Road Fund acquisition of 49% um, Saudi Aramco. I believe that there is this, I, I remember Silk Road participated in this acquisition of Saudi Aramco. And then 
um, not just the Chinese money coming, Chinese investment coming to Saudi or UAE uh, or the region, but the region uh, regional partners still come to China. A major uh, investment authority, like the uh, UAE, the Abu Dhabi investment authority, and a lot of other regional players still has their investment offices in China. And uh, many of those investment funds also uh, applied and got, got the QFI, uh, QFI, uh, the qualified uh, institutional investors license in China, meaning they can participate in China's domestic capital market for different types of investment. So that's the kind of you know, relationship between Chinese money and uh, uh, Gulf money. So obviously, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, when we talk about China's activism, China's economic activism, that's low hanging fruit, that's well understood. Are you seeing any other countries in the Middle East outside of Saudi Arabia and the UAE as targets of, of sovereign fund activism from China's side? Uh, yes. Other re um, my, my focus has been on Gulf Cooperation Council member countries, so I can speak to those. Basically, every important Gulf members, uh, every members of the Gulf Cooperation Council um, ha has varied degrees with the Chinese. Um, once I give, give another example of um, China, um, Kuwait. There is um, the in terms of Saudi, in terms of sovereign wealth fund cooperation, the um, Kuwaiti Investment Authority granted, um, a, I think it's a 300, 300 million quota to buy yuan denominated stocks and bonds by Chinese authorities. This is a very interesting development in terms of how the Middle Eastern sovereign funds, the KIA, a Kuwaiti Investment Authority, wanted to buy. Uh, they are they are they are given they were given the quota to invest in renminbi denominated asset, right? And then there is another development uh, related to the Saudi Kuwaiti uh, investment Kuwaiti investment fund with partner with China to invest in joint infrastructure projects such as the Silk City in the region. And then in terms of Qatar, there are also uh, various of uh, development in terms of building Qatar's um, railway, uh, building building um, Qatar's World Cup. Uh, what is the stadium? Qatar's um, Lucille Stadium? Or is that the, the stadium, Qatar World Cup? Yes. So China actually bid uh, Chinese contractors applied and got the contract to build Qatar's World Cup games game facility, and there are also related railways and connections. And then, uh, in terms of sovereign funds cooperation, there are also. Um, Major bank, major banking development. One such example is um, interestingly this time for Qatar, is Qatar Investment Authority agreed to invest in uh, the initial offering, initial public offering, or the IPO of one Chinese state-owned bank called Agricultural Bank of China, and that 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 was before. BRI was even launched. And then um, Qatar Investment Authority also invested in 
this leading Chinese investment firm called uh, Citic Group. Um, and there are also a various of other uh, corporations along the lines of renewable development, in particular uh, EV manufacture. The Around 2020, Qatar Investment Authority uh, basically backed a backed the financing of a Chinese EV battery maker, EV EV manufacturing uh, called uh, Xpeng. So those are so you, now you realize. Oh, okay. So China leads the global EV and EV battery transformation, and there is no, it's not just Chinese money. There is also Gulf money behind it. Um, then the other example, I believe Bahrain is also a GCC member, and Bahrain, so far, there were no significant Belt and Road Initiative project in Bahrain, but there are some um, sovereign funds corporations, such as the China-Bahrain Joint Investment Forum and uh, China, some Chinese capital, as well as local uh, Bahrain uh, bank, joint launch venture capital fund. So you see, you know, China is not only involved. China is is not only um, developing relationship with UAE or Saudi, but actually, if you look across the board of the GCC, there is a lot of uh, things going on. So then, on that topic, I know the CIC has established partnerships, you know, outside of the Middle East as well. Uh, an example of which we've seen is the France-China Cooperation Fund, which is, you know, providing China with greater access, easier access to Western markets. Do you see China CIC establishing similar partnerships, similar funds with GCC countries? Um, I think that is a trend in terms of developing uh, developing joint investment fund um, and a partnership. So CIC's partnership with so far mostly is with um, CIC's existing partnership, joint investment partnership, are mostly in uh, Western market. United States, uh, France are two good examples. And um, uh, there is also CIC and uh, uh, Russia. Uh, but that is, there are different, it's under different scenarios. There is also the China, Renminbi investment fund for the purpose of using Renminbi with the Russians. So um, mostly is partnership the purpose of this kind of partnership, especially in Western countries, is for the purpose of um, ease market uh, friction because the rise of Chinese investment, in particular state-led investment, has triggered um, Western suspicions about China's strategic, strategic motivation. So having a local partner um, can allow Chinese money having easier access into the domestic market, especially from regulatory perspective, because um, there could be a case to be made saying that this joint partner, um, in terms of when arguing in front of regulators, you can say this is uh, a domestic person, rather domestic entity, rather than a foreign entity. So that's more of the uh, rationale. Uh, for China's partnership with hosting with, with hosting uh, countries, uh, host, with funds in hosting countries, whereas um, partnership with Gulf funds, I do see there is there there will be opportunities, and it looks like the appetite is still there. But I would think I would also argue that perhaps this kind of partnership is not is really not because of market access. Um, you know, China. Middle East, the there is really not that 
there is really not that on the one hand the middle eastern uh, economies do not necessarily share the high level of suspicion in the western market but the joint funds perhaps really is about knowledge and expertise transfer and in particular when you have several funds jointly invested in higher risk and capital intensive projects such as um ai quantum computing or um along the entire supply chains of the renewable energy or clean energy transformation these this could actually be good opportunity for china and middle eastern countries to harvest on the one hand chinese capital uh, chinese technology and expertise and on the other hand market huge market opportunities in the region so the last point i want to hit on here then uh, is a development that we saw back in august when BRICS announced that come 2024 there will be six new states entering the alliance among them, we have Saudi Arabia, Iran, UAE, and Egypt. Of note, all of these entrants are participants in China's BRI. So understanding how that will be affecting BRICS in the coming year, what do you see being, if any, meaningful, tangible changes to how these Middle Eastern countries economically interact with China? Um. That's an excellent question. I think there are two points to be made. One is related to energy. The other is um, equity market development. So on energy, I think the with the um, expansion of BRICS and in particular uh, the um, addition of Saudi Arabia and Iran, now BRICS, the, the expanded BRICS really become a very important energy uh, group. Uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and then uh, I think UAE is also a member of um, the New Development Bank. So now you see this the the per, perhaps the uh, the the strengthened financial ability or financing ability of the BRICS Bank as well. And but the relevancy of the BRICS is not the expanded BRICS is not just in terms of hydrocarbon, but there is also critical minerals. On the one hand, the China is the existing the incumbent dominator of uh, critical mineral supply chains, uh, but then and again, uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, all these Middle Eastern, uh, all these Gulf countries are also very much interested in um, developing critical minerals and uh, having their, and they have the capital um, through Sovereign Wealth Fund to finance the development of these kind of funds. One such uh, one such example would be the PI, the public uh, public investment funds, Saudi Arabia's PIF, uh, wanted to. Um, they have a clear agenda to expand along critical minerals and clean energy, and uh, they established the, the critical mineral investment funds. And uh, they are also very much interested in expanding to uh, countries like the ASEAN. And uh, as there, so perhaps an uh, emerging trend going forward, we would observe would be on the along the along uh, more money would flow into critical mineral supply chains into Saudi Arabia into uh, UAE and perhaps joint investment opportunities to go to ASEAN countries such as Indonesia but here a footnote here is that Saudi Arabia is not necessarily interested in the money because they can finance it and they are really interested in the technology and expertise in terms of the processing the mining of critical minerals and that's something that China actually has. 
And then in terms of um, uh, in terms of the equity market development, um, right now. Uh, major Gulf economies such as uh, Qatar, uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, uh, Qatar in particular, Qatar in the UAE, in Dubai, and Abu Dhabi, has uh, has has major presence of internationalized Chinese banks as well as uh, Renminbi offshore trading, and then. Uh, a recent development is that is Saudi Arabia, the Riyadh Stock Exchange, also signed an MOU with the Shanghai Stock Exchange. The idea is to strengthen equity market um, cooperation, uh, the development of digital technology, digital finance technology. So perhaps that that's uh, a further integration or further cooperation in terms of the equity market development is also another trend within. Um, the with the, with the, between China, Saudi China, and the Gulf, and the expanded BRICS countries, because BRICS already established a um, stock market uh, link, whereas with the uh, additional of Saudi Arabia and other GCC members, perhaps that's another link going forward to watch. Wonderful, Zoe Liu, fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me.